Good evening, everybody. It is 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, on a Wednesday evening, April 26th. My name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art. This is the Mocha Live podcast. Joining me as he does every week from the Museum of Crypto Art, the founder of the museum, Colborn Bell. Colborn, what's up? Chilling, chilling. Good to be here. And joining us uh, as he does not every week, the metaverse architect of the museum, the metaverse architect we all need in our lives uh, untitled xyz what's up dude hey guys it's an honor to be here grateful to be here looking forward to chatting we're very excited to have you here uh, we wanted to have you here because you've been active on a number of blockchains throughout your long and storied crypto art history and the topic on our minds today is blockchains but like different blockchains I think that we all, uh, I know for myself, I tend to have like a bit of tunnel vision when I think about crypto art. Uh, I think about it as a product of Ethereum. Uh, I think Ethereum first, Ethereum second, Ethereum third. And that I just am not sure is correct. So we're going to talk about all sorts of different chains, Solana, Polygon, AVAX, Tezos. I mean, there's a bunch. Um, Untitled, I wanted to specifically ask you about a blockchain that I don't think many people think about at all. But you were really active on, which is Steam or Steam it, right? S T E M S T E E M. Yes, that's right. Steam, the Steam blockchain, and Steam it was an app that was built on top of it. Okay, so so what was that like? I mean, like, I mean, this is 2016. Yeah, so that was 2016 uh, when it first kicked off. I think it was July of 2016 um, or June, maybe technically. But it was uh, a social media network where likes basically equated to currency. So they had a currency called Steam and basically it was a blogging platform. And instead of like when you like something, you're basically dedicating inflation to like token inflation to users. Uh, So it was kind of a crazy, uh, as you would expect, crazy popularity contest. Um, It's a pretty rowdy platform. Well, it's interesting. I mean, just to think that like that was happening around the same time that like the rare Pepe community was starting on Ethereum. Did you have any like crossover at that time? Or were you kind of sequestered on uh, Steam? Steam it. Counterparty. Rare Pepe was counterparty. Oh, it was, it was it was not Ethereum. Bitcoin. Oh, awesome. Okay. So can you guys fill me in on the history that I clearly <laughs> don't know nearly as, not, um, as much about as I should? Cole, were you there when like rare Pepe started minting or did you come in like after the fact? Uh, I mean, I was, I was there, but that was not a community that was known to me. Uh And I was at the time in 2016, I did some Bitcoin meetups and uh, some ETH meetups. Honestly, it was mostly just like small gatherings in New York. And Mm -hmm. I went to a handful, but like pretty quickly, I got very deep into the steam scene and it was very like a big term back then was like tribalism. Everyone is, and it's still valid today, but everyone mm-hmm. is very into their own chains and kind of defensive of them, um, which, uh, you know, happens still today. So I was still, I was very much kind of into the steam scene. And um, since it was a social network by nature, there were a lot of meetups, a lot of kind of gatherings and stuff like that. Colborn, when you were like first kind of delving into like collecting crypto art, um, I know that you had some familiarity with you know what was happening with the Pepe's on Bitcoin, but you were mostly on Ethereum. Did you find that tribalism in the chains back then as well? Uh, I mean, you know, my experience collecting crypto art in 2017 was on an app called Additional, 
which was effectively like an Instagram clone in which they kind of paid all the, the gas fees for people to like mint and, and collect. Um, mm. So, you know, I have this pretty like cool collection that I, I did just this year find the, the seed phrase to of, you know, 250 additional artworks that are of, you know, varying quality. So, you know, I was, I was predominantly on ETH at the time and I was doing more investment activity. Uh, yeah. I remember stuff like the Mecenas Arts token that was launched. I remember when Codex uh, was launched, you know, and obviously CryptoKitties was huge in 2017. I was like an original adopter of Mooncats then. So it wasn't, I saw the use case for art at that time, especially around like provenance and, and authenticity. Um, but it wasn't really till it did like a full cycle that I, I kind of came back around and got super into it. You know, I, I famously got my start on Solana, right? And I kind of like meandered over to like NFTs on ETH after pretty significant exposure to mostly PFPs on Solana. And it's interesting to see how those two ecosystems have developed just since I've been a part of them. Obviously, the crypto art scene on Ethereum is so much like stronger, or at least has like longer, uh, much older bones, right? You know, it's been pumping. Um, at least the artistry has since you know 2017 or so. Whereas I believe the first NFTs minted at all on Solana were August of 2021. But it's interesting to see a kind of nation art market develop there, and they have, you know, different like idols more or less. You know, they have a, a kind of different aesthetic, and I think that's a really interesting place to kind of kick off a, a more conceptual question, which is, you know, uh, will chains or do they already like develop individual aesthetics? You know, my argument initially is, is yes. Right. And the reason I say so is because I think about like Tezos, right. Where FX hash is hugely influential. Right. And I think you see a greater proportion of generative art on Tezos than you do on uh, Ethereum, where it's more of a, a niche rather than, um, you know, something approaching like a majority or, you know, a huge amount. Whereas on Solana, when I look at the art, while there is the generative art, the artists who have, I think the highest kind of like cultural capital are people like John Lay or Ben Bashao, who are like almost like comic artists um, or very comic inspired. And a lot of the art that does really well there are, is, is a lot more nostalgic. It's a lot less like fine art influence. It's a lot more you know, clearly of this millennial. Um, Kirk, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good, that's an interesting observation because I think like with Steam in the early days, because it was commingled as a kind of a blogging platform, what mm. people would do to get the most likes is basically write about the process of creating their art. So they would be forced to, they wouldn't be able to, in fact, they might be even punished for creating a post with just an image and it would be downvoted and their reputation would go down. So what happened on Steam, it was people, and these are early people like, you know, Stella Bell was a big Steemit user. Ophelia Fu, um, uh, Eric Vance Walton was a big time writer back then. And uh, Fairy Tale Life for me was very influential because she was the first person I actually like connected with. And she said, like, write about your work, like, explain how you created that image. Uh, so people would create these, you know, really beautiful kind of like tutorials almost on how they, on what they did. And it was a way for art to exist there because it just would be punished otherwise. Basically. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I mean, it's it's uh, it's so interesting how like the the identity of the chains is carried like culturally into the output that is produced, right? So, I kind of think of like Bitcoin as you know, Bitcoin is like the honey badger; it doesn't give a fuck, right? So that was <laughs> like really, I think, influential for like the rare Pepe community because that messaging is like really the same. Right. This mm -hmm. is like an iconic symbol that can be adopted, like utilized in different ways. But it's always that thing of just like rebelliousness, not caring, like and that is very core identity. Uh, Steam it, if I recall, was a project of Dan Larimer, who was one of the lead programmers on uh, EOS. Right. So there was like a lot of overflow of that community in Kind of maybe like an ethereum competitor in into maybe something like this i think you know we should also talk about like how steam it kind of maybe led to scent and uh you know like ex there's like incredible early writings on scent as well about like what people were doing in crypto voxels uh or explanation of the the art there right like i was involved in 2017 or might have been early 2018 in the Tezos ICO. So I got to see kind of like the evolution of that chain from an identity that is like completely different from what it is today. So it's interesting as like these blockchains are born, how they begin to find identity, how they begin to like communicate that to their audience and the types of people that are attracted to that messaging and create cultural output on top of it. Coburn, do you think there will always be a, a kind of split between these blockchains? I mean, uh, you guys both seem to be saying or suggesting that, you know, the era of the 2017, 2018, 2019 was kind of similar in how things were schismed across blockchains, similar to how they are now with, you know, uh, at least a burgeoning, if not thriving NFT scene on six or so blockchains at, at the very least. Um, do you think that continues or, uh, you know, I'm kind of under the impression that chain agnosticism is going to be inevitable at some point. Uh, I don't really buy it because like attention spans are short, right? So mm -hmm. even when people were like talking about the projects that they were invested in, you know, like Chainlink was like the Chainlink Marines, you know, and there's like a stoicism about that. And they would kind of like present that or you go to like Dogecoin, like one of the original, like me, the probably original meme coin. Uh, it's like more fun and playful and has like the iconography of like the, the, the dog. Um, so, you know, I think it's almost, they're, they're just inescapable. Uh, and I think like Ethereum, you know, what is like Ethereum? I don't know. You know, I always think of like the, the buffer corn, like the mix between like Buffalo and unicorn <laughs> for Ethereum, uh, as like early iconography, there was obviously like a lot of like lifting of Vitalik into almost like a, you know, a, a Jesus-like figure and a lot of reappropriation of like Renaissance themes. And, uh, you know, these are kind of just like classic ways and symbols and things that messages uh, spread. Uh, I was just going to say steam, uh, they were steamers. So that obviously didn't take off very well. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a, a really fascinating point about how each blockchain develops the language of its own ethos. And I, I think again about my time with Solana, you know, and just like the traits within the PFP collection and they're not, they're all like, you know, you'll have a, some something or other, what that'll have a Solana skin, 
right? As opposed to, you know, with the colors, the like the blue, the, the turquoise, the purple. And that's kind of just like a, a recognized symbology of that blockchain or like the purple of, um, you know, one of the influencers, Soul Big Brain is like, goes, has this like purple avatar and everything is purple. So that will trickle into the iconography of like the, the PFPs itself. And then, you know, that gets picked up by the art in ways that are, you know, either mocking or an homage or, or ironic. Um, I don't know. I mean, do either of you have insight into what like that iconography looks like on Tezos? My, you know, experience there is a little limited. I have no experience on Tezos. Yeah, I have, I have you know, I, I was there. I saw it. I don't want to like speak to anything, but that it just never connected with me that that was a place for art. But I'll say it clearly showed that there was a need for mm. an alternative chain that would like facilitate low fees that gave more access. And when we begin to talk about like the promises of crypto art as a whole, in like increasing artistic sovereignty and giving them more choices, it's very, very evident that we're still like tip of the iceberg in the ways that we can use these technologies to like facilitate distribution and, and bring on more artists into just general crypto ecosystems. So one thing, and I just looked this up to make sure, uh, there was a Tezos octopus that was kind of like, a, um, and I don't know what you would call it, but it was an icon early on because it was, I think it was a diagram of their self-amending protocol. Um, <laughs> and it, it was very, it's like a super confusing diagram. And if you Google Tezos Octopus, it'll show up. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of the imagery is super interesting in all of this, because I do think it really adds to the kind of like culture and virality of a new system or ecosystem. And and with art, art has always been, I mean, these visual kind of ways that people communicate this stuff art has been so instrumental across all of these chains um, in different mediums or different kind of methods. But I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously all these chains, some will survive and some will not, and some have survived and some have not, but yeah. Well, I, I think that leads to another interesting point, which is, you know, if you use the infrastructure of um, say Meta, uh, MetaMask wallet, we'll just take wallets as the example, right? MetaMask wallet is really professional, almost to the point of it being like difficult to access for people not in the know. It's not a, a it's not an accessible piece of technology. You kind of got to know your way around. Uh, Solana wallets, like a Phantom wallet, for instance, is a little bit more, I think, accessible. It's a little bit more polished. It's very sleek, almost like an iPhone. When I use like a Temple wallet on Tezos, it the, the it just doesn't aesthetically feel up to par, right? It's just a bit clunkier, right? It's not to say anything about the backend technology, but just the experience with it. And I think that Coborn, you know, one of the things that you've expressed um, otherwise is like, there's just less built on Tezos. We know less about its ability to sustain itself in the long term, right? And what happens when, you know, a chain like Tezos falls apart, right? Like, what would that look like? And so I'm curious, what, you, what do you think? You know, if say Tezos were to fall apart, what happens to those artists? What happens to those ecosystem? And Maybe that has happened before in another example. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, without, I'm just, I'm just individually curious if like art and culture is a sufficient use case and need for a blockchain to exist. Right. Mm -hmm. I think if there are not like other native users participating in different things, like at the heart of this, this is really a, like a financial revolution in building parallel architecture there 
So if you don't have those use cases, is there an enduring long-term case for these uh, assets, these cultural assets that are being created there? And if you bring in culture first, is that enough to kind of fill in the other sides? I don't have that answer and I'm excited to see uh, kind of what that, that means. I think NFTs for sure are here to stay. I don't believe there is like a to date a Tezos bridge for assets there to move over to other chains. I think there is probably a reason why, and I, I don't know if this is entirely true, but I don't think OpenSea supports the, the trading of Tezos assets. Well, I mean, I just, I think I'm using Tezos more as like a stand-in conceptually. So I think about like, you know, I've been, I've explored at times like Luna NFTs or like near NFTs and those blockchains are either defunct or at much less capacity and and interest than they were at other points. I suppose, Kirk, maybe you can shed some insight on this, but like, let's say just for the sake of argument, a blockchain like Tezos right? That just has a huge artistic ecosystem. Let's say it kind of falls apart. Do you think people migrate to other chains? Do you think they do so to one place en masse? Do you think they port the ideology of say, you know, the, our Ur Tezos, or do you think they're kind of glomming onto the individual cultures of other chains? Uh, that's interesting. I think, um, well, we haven't in this cycle really seen, or maybe we have, but we haven't in my eyes, seen a like full-on blockchain collapse in the same way that we did in the previous cycle. Like Steam famously, The Defiant has an amazing article about it, but it Steam collapsed when Justin Sun tried to acquire an entire blockchain. And a community actually fractured off and created, well, it split in a lot of ways. There is still Steam, but it is a shadow of its former self. And then there's Hive, which actually was created out of the community uh, a core community that wanted freedom. And that, that is actually an incredible story, like really unbelievable kind of sequence of events. Can you tell it? Uh, I can tell, I can tell parts of it. Like it, it started with like steam it Inc was the company behind the steam blockchain. They launched the blockchain and uh, ninja mind. It was called like 80% of the token supply. And so they had a massive uh, control over the token and it eventually kind of dwindled down as they sold it off over the years down to like 30%. But ultimately Steam and Inc uh, was purchased for several million dollars by Justin Sun. Uh, Justin Sun then essentially acquired the stake. Uh, the community of users at that time were really upset about that because it was done kind of without any engagement and without any, it was kind of shadowy how it was done. Um, and to that point, people are like, are you acquiring the app steamit.com or are you acquiring the blockchain? Like what is the intention here? So I'll try to, I'll try to go through it super quickly without rambling, but um, Justin Sun, his intention was to fold it into Tron. That was his intention. He wanted a popular app. He wanted to buy it, fold in the usership into Tron um and what happened was the community got really upset they didn't like that they actually the block producers who were part of steam it issued a hard fork or a soft fork maybe and froze justin sun's (laughs) so that he couldn't transfer it and as a response justin sun called all of his exchange buddies at huobi and binance 
and had them give him steak that he could use to then have another hard fork and cut <laughs> all of those out. So it became like this battle of hard forks and all these block producers were like flying back and forth in terms of who they were. And it was fascinating because in the end, um, Justin's son basically like froze or deleted accounts that were part of this blockchain. So people lost millions of dollars and they did it with funds from Binance, which were also user funds. It was like, it was crazy. It was like, <laughs> see, you know, now you understand why we say this is the chain wars, you know, this is not like hunky dory, like warmth of other yeah, chains. Yeah. My <laughs> original title was the warmth of other chains and Colborn in his publicity for it changes it to the chain wars. Oh no, it was, it was just blood in the street. It was crazy. And honestly, it was minute to minute crazy. And people just like buy the price skyrocketed because people were buying the, to like fight one another. And um, a lot of people lost a lot of money. And ultimately, the community decided to break off and create Hive. Um, I wasn't as engaged in that ecosystem. That was like early 2020 when that happened. But it, it's an incredible story. And of that, just back to your initial question, there are very few people that kind of bounced into the Ethereum ecosystem cleanly from that. I don't think I did cleanly. I was pretty traumatized by all this stuff. And it took me a while to kind of like really sort of get back in a rhythm. But there are like, honestly, one of the artists for, um, for not, he's not in this piece, but Shortcut, who I didn't mention earlier, is one of the few artists who actually like, saw the right you know moves to make and got into the ethereum ecosystem very well um and ophelia Fu, i think did that as well and stella bell they're they're a number but i think it was challenging for a lot of those artists to gain trust again through those wars it was a lot of traumatic conflict and um i think when we're talking about the history of crypto art i've mentioned this to our team and we've talked about it but a lot of the people from the earlier chains just it just like falls away and they don't get mentioned as part of the conversation when we're talking about history of digital art history of crypto art i think that's that's an important topic too yeah well i mean i think that goes back to what we were kind of hinting at before which is like it's really easy to get caught in the tunnel vision of individual chains you know i know on solana outside of like certain events that kind of bring people back and forth and i can think specifically of like um, patrick amadon did a um, a Solana release and so did Kath Samard. And that's, I think, more on the positive side. Then you have the little more dubious side, which is like um, Solana PFP projects like D-Gods bridging over to Ethereum or, or Utes d bridging over to Polygon. And suddenly you kind of have, it's like these wormholes opening up between the chains. And suddenly you're able to like see through and you see some of the figures on the other side and some of the ethos on the other side and some of the, I don't know, like the iconography on the other side. And it, it really is kind of amazing how fractured so much of this ecosystem continues to be across blockchains colborne do you think that most collectors have settled on a chain like permanently or do you think that like there will eventually be i don't know like cross chain collectors cro i guess cross uh, cross chain collectorship being um kind of the standard as opposed to the outlier Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things, and I'm gonna start with the artists, right? I think the artists are incredibly compelled where there is new space to fill mm -hmm. it, right? 
And I think yeah. Ethereum as a chain right now feels incredibly saturated and it's just not so interesting. As a collector, I'm not so interested. I'm not seeing like so, so many new things, so much new innovation. Um, so like as a collector, I'm keen to follow the artists, right? So I saw a lot of artists like when Ordinals was launched, move there and start to inscribe stuff there. And I think that is exciting for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. now like there is a time to be collecting and there is also a time to be like building. Right. And I think we've already proven that like NFTs as a concept are here to stay, but my initial like imperative to be in this was to go to like the fringe of creativity. So I know a lot of artists are like very unsure of where to mint right now. Ethereum has this like place of prestige where like fine art is and where sales are like higher sales are meant to be happening, but no sales are happening right now. So mm. how, as an artist, do you get to like return to where it is fun, where you can freely like express and create where you don't have to kind of like worry about floor prices. And this is always kind of like a constantly shifting thing that everybody has to kind of like philosophically align with. It reminds me of like talking to um, Curran 4D months ago. And asking him about, because he shares so much art on Twitter, right? but he only mints very sporadic pieces. And it's kind of a, an artificial decision, right? Just based on like his own feeling, right? But there's a legitimacy that he feels from minting that isn't based in just sharing artwork, right? I sometimes see the sentiment uh, among artists on my timeline, which is like, this should be fun, right? So release artwork in the world. You don't have to sell everything that you show to the world. Right. But there's, I think this kind of like, just as we're talking about with Ethereum, having this kind of like artificial, but still present, you know, sense of prestige that if you're going to mint a work on Ethereum, it has to be polished, it has to be perfect. It's somehow in like this echelon away from, I don't know. I, I know a lot of artists who will mint more kind of free flowy, less serious, maybe more like, like in progress work on you know, Tezos, just because of there's this feeling that they have a little bit more freedom to do there when that freedom is, I mean, mostly like imagined and untitled as like from the artist perspective, like, what do you think about that? I mean, it generally, like, I think there's some absolutely beautiful artwork and interesting artwork on Tezos. Um, no doubt. It, it's like, and, and I think it's played a significant role in the health of Ethereum, honestly, because it has that relationship of like, there's a testing ground and, and I don't want to diminish it to just a testing ground, but it has been, a playground for a lot of people to learn about blockchain and learn about these different rules and these different kind of strategies, what have you. And then, you know, you obviously do see a lot of people like exploring ideas in Tezos and then maybe initiating them or polishing them or what, what have you on Ethereum. I mean, I don't think that's a bad relationship. And I think there are also obviously artists who do exclusive work on Tezos and it's all brilliant. Um, I think as an artist, I've found for people who I've spoken with, Ethereum is far too expensive to experiment on. And Ezos is a really wonderful and welcoming kind of environment for people to explore. So I think it's been a super attractive for that. I, I haven't personally minted there. I have bought a few pieces on there, but not, not a lot. Um, but generally, I think... It is, uh, I think it's okay to explore and experiment across different chains. I don't, uh, but 
Yeah, I don't know. Tezos for me as an artist hasn't been, I don't know if it's timing or trust issues or whatever, but I just, I haven't minted on there myself. And Colborn, I know you're reticent to buy from other chains, but like, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what do you think would theoretically attract you about an art movement on a different chain? What are you, what are you looking for? I know you say, I, I know it's very conceptual, right? You were talking about like following the creativity. Right. I'm not like a Ethereum maxi, but I am at this point kind of like an EVM maxi, right? Like I want the ability to bring that asset if, if I so choose to the Ethereum blockchain, right? I, I generally believe that like Bitcoin has proven itself and Ethereum have proven itself and they, they will be here to stay, right? So when I begin to think about like the durability of that asset for the long term in like a collection that I care about and want to preserve and keep, and these are things that are important to me, right? Like uh, fundamentally the underlying tech is, and the survivability of that tech is really, really important. So, you know, would I, I've done stuff on Polygon. I've done a lot of stuff on Polygon, uh, like was big into Avogachis, but this is like, for me, it just cemented itself as a, uh, a gaming identity, right? More mass assets, more accessible things. And then, it, you know, it kind of had the unfortunate thing because gas fees were so low of just like being a lot of spam. That idea of like being an EVM maxi and being concerned about like the durability and, and where these assets are created and where these assets go is, is really important. Uh, sure. And the other thing I like wanted to touch on also was that, you know, each of these things, again, is opening up more space. And I think what like when Rarible was created, right, this was suddenly outside of the ecosystem where artists could go to mint different types of works that they had never experimented with. Right. I think everybody wants these circular feedback loops. I don't think like artists really want to exist like with their work by themselves and then go and be like the advocates for that work in a primary market. You want the back and forth. You want both like the social interaction, but you also want to be putting these assets into people's hands that like really appreciate and care for them. So I just think like Rarible, Rarible was like an incredible precursor in beginning to open up space for like more experimental, different works, people to explore different identities uh, that they could then kind of like move back in and forward from because the costs like at the time to mint on it, it was like $2 to mint on Ethereum. And then during like the bull, last bull market, what was it? It was like 50, a hundred dollars to mint something. It's just not accessible and it's not a great place for people to initiate those feedback loops. So I think it's just an interesting point, especially about, you know, wanting things connected to Ethereum because of your belief in its stability. You know, I was talking to uh, Sats Moon yesterday, the collector, and he was talking about having a large collection of physical artwork that he had collected over 20 years, you know, like Banksy's and Space Invaders. And uh, it all burned in a storage locker fire, right? Which is how he eventually found his way to the blockchain um, and became, you know, an uber prominent collector here. And, you know, I, I, I feel that that sentiment, Coborn, that you made about having kind of a trust in Bitcoin and Ethereum that isn't elsewhere is, is I, I feel like that's echoed in a lot of spaces. Um, on a semi-related note, there was a lot of pushback from like the Solana community when D gods announced that they were bridging to a different chain, right? Not just because they were abandoning the chain, but because there were, it was obviously trying to appeal to a different audience. It was, it, ha it just had certain connotations. Um, and I don't think we've really seen that with artwork. 
Um, but say somebody were to, and, and I don't know how this works technologically. I'm not sure how easy it is to bridge, you know, any kind of asset, but you know, I, I think we're going to start seeing at some point, if it's not happening already, bridging of artworks across the chains in which they were made and which they were minted and into the ecosystems in which they were minted. Right. If I'm an artist and I'm creating an artwork just on Solana for the sake of argument, right. And it's referential to Solana. It's important to me that it's on Solana and then it, it's bought and it's moved to Ethereum. I'm wondering if you guys think that's unethical. Kirk, I mean, what do you think? If somebody took a, a sculpture you made or a, an architecture and moved it to a chain that you either didn't support or didn't feel trust in, I mean, how would you feel about that? I don't think it makes any sense personally because I think the whole, I mean, it depends on the asset. For me as an artist, the point of blockchain is provenance. The point is to have the timestamp and the, the locality of it somewhere where you can point and it's it's like it's there and if you if you confuse that by mirroring it or copying it to another chain and minting it there like i see some artists doing this and i don't get it because i think yeah i just real slight pushback i I agree with you in the long term but i think in the short term the provenance is almost culturally recognized like we all know that cosmo de medici owns x copies right click save as guy right we don't need to look at the provenance of any artwork because it's culturally understood that that's where that artwork is. Now, whether that changes in the future, whether that's as you know cut and dry as it seems, nevertheless, I think, and I'm curious for your take on this as well, but I think a lot of people, if there's a, a desire to bridge across chains, it's because it is known that they own a certain artwork and they are trying to communicate something about their affiliation with the chains based on changing that artwork. So the actual provenance doesn't matter because you know, Lady X owns art Y from artist Z. And we all know that. So the bridging, it it doesn't change anything about the provenance because we are all aware of how that artwork moved. Let's, let's take a different example that I think is just infinitely stupid. That is relatable (laughs) is, is like all the, the people that came in and like did the live physical burnings of like the Banksy works and put them on the blockchain and they're like, okay, like now this is an NFT. Like we made the first Banksy NFT, you know, (laughs) that is like infinitely, it's infinitely stupid because the artist had no intent to ever create that work in that capacity. You know, I kind of think of those things as, as the same, like you are literally burning the artistic intent and you are like recreating something that is like of your own doing. Uh, And yeah, I think, think that's dumb it's it's like i mean that's that's a it's no longer banksy obviously it's like a performance piece by a collector and it's a terrible performance but (laughs) like uh, like, i think they're like i personally and i know every artist has their own kind of intent and, and focus on this and i respect any of that i think for me personally when i when i sell a piece honestly i am giving a lot of authority to the collector and i respect their their decisions. If they decide to do something I don't agree with, I, I kind of respect that because it's part of the legacy of, 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 you know, it's what I'm, it's what you're doing. When you sell a piece on a blockchain, you're, you're selling a token to a person and they're the steward of that token. They can make decisions about it, however stupid or, or brilliant. Um, in my eyes, I think there's always artist intent. And in my eyes, I think that always has to be a part of the story, but, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's tricky. It's always comes down to context. I feel like in terms of 
what's going on, why are they doing making this decision, and what are they factoring in? And I think it, it's, I don't know, provenance is so important, and I feel like that original timestamp is just like the, the the meaning of that token. But this is also, I think, to a certain extent, you know, locked in a very current perspective, right? As we must be, but you know, technology will advance, right? And like already like the museum itself uses infrastructure that move, moves between Ethereum and Polygon blockchains, right? That's only going to proliferate. It's only going to get easier. The tools by which these blockchains are interconnected, the various wormholes connected, you know, blockchain A and blockchain B are only going to get stronger. I, I imagine at a certain point, I don't know how far out we are from it, but moving across blockchains is just going to become a lot more normal than it is today, right? A lot cheaper and a lot easier too. You'll be able to move things back and forth across, say, Polygon and Ethereum, you know, as easily as an artist tells you they don't want their piece moved to Polygon, so you know, just move it back, and it's cheap and it's easy. You know, I'm wondering, Colborn, like, do you think when that happens, or, or, and again, maybe you have better insight about how far away we are from that happening, uh, but do you think that will change, like, your opinion on, you know, this kind of like artist intention aspect? Something just like came to mind and I think maybe it's, it's worth you exploring in a different thing, but um, like, you know, Robness took a crypto punk, burned the crypto punk and then minted like 10,000 editions of this burnt crypto punk on Tezos. Right. And that was clearly, I, well, I don't want to say clearly, but I view, I viewed that as a piece of performance art uh, and shout out Colin, who's been like a super dear friend he used Emblem Vault to wrap that object asset and send it to the museum on Ethereum. I don't, what, what do we have? It also, like within the museum, I don't, we have a very interesting piece of like history, but I also think it's like, is that, is that a piece of that burnt crypto punk, you know, beyond the performance? Like, I also think there was like an incredible, stupidity around people that were trying to like fractionalize digitally physical artworks and say that like you owned, you know, like this pixel of this Banksy. Like just, I mean, just like the, the financialization of the art is not, it, it removes the, it's so far away from like the art itself that it renders it almost kind of like meaningless. Well, it's, it's all narrative, right? It all comes back to the narratives that we tell and the narratives we preserve, right? Because the, that piece that um, Colin donated, the wrapped object piece, that might be understood as a quote-unquote fragment of that burnt punk if the history of that asset is communicated effectively in the future, right? If it's not, then it just becomes another thing. It's outside the purview of the artwork itself, Right. I, I think about um, the royalty debate that we had to fucking go through over the last bunch of months and how, how infrequently Dada was mentioned in that discussion, right? And I, I feel often that Dada's contribution to crypto art is overlooked all the time, despite them being around, you know, preceding CryptoPunks and around the same time as CryptoPunks and, and Pepe's and with this incredible contribution. And yet, for whatever reason, I don't think it's always conscious. I think sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious, sometimes it's circumstantial. Various narratives are forgotten and it just inflects the entire history of the thing. Like Kirk, with what you were saying with Steam at Hive, like I've never heard that story before. Um, that now paints the entire history of the blockchain in a different light and paints this entire conversation in a different light. So 
you know, uh, and again, this, I think this relates back to what happens when chain mobility becomes easier and more frequent and, and less momentous, right? It's harder to make a dent into the narrative, harder to understand or, or communicate the narrative because it's not as obvious to communicate. Yeah. Dada just, I, I made a steam account for Dada back in the day, hmm. long ages ago. And I think Judy and Bea were both like, this isn't, this is kind of weird, man. Like, I don't know. I don't get these perspectives. <laughs> and they were, I mean, they were totally right. <laughs> They've been right for a long time. Um, and honestly, for they were instrumental for me really trusting a new ecosystem to dive into. Um, they were one of the core relationships I've had early on. And like their app was so holistically, thoughtfully created in a way to like embrace art. And anyway, I could speak for ages on data, but they they also like I think have seen now like the a lot of the mistakes that are being made in the market now to kind of like detract from creative integrity and all these different things and falling into the same market dynamics that ultimately did steam bad. Uh, I feel like I don't know we're we're in this weird kind of like mirroring cycles thing, and I, I feel like there are going to be other chains that sort of get wrapped up into it. Anyway, I forgot what was your core question. <laughs> I kind of went down yeah. a spiral. Oh, I don't. I don't really know what the question is either. But I think there are still mechanisms that we haven't like explored. And on the royalty issue, I think the smartest thing that Matt and John of Lara Labs ever did was to hold back a thousand of those punks for their own supply, right? So perhaps like, and this is something like building on on the side, but. If, if artists are making addition works, right? And royalties are not a promised thing. Well, how do we in, like ensure that they are able to keep like pieces of their work, right? And this is something that XCopy also had to reconcile with lately where he had said from the very beginning, he was only going to mint like 149 uh, one of ones on super rare. But like you come to the realization that, oh my God, like you don't own any of your work. Right. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Like you might not be able to get secondary sales in perpetuity. Uh, so there has to be kind of like some alternative to, and this is always why I tell artists to like, just keep minting, just keep minting. Like, even if you own it, that's a good thing. Right. Because you're, you're just betting on yourself in that regard. What do you guys think about, uh, maybe you've discussed this in another podcast, but back when art wasn't selling artists were burning it. And I always was like, no, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Well, What's I mean, that? just conceptually, that has interesting connotations. As, as a man with way too many novels and short stories and film scripts never to be seen by the world, just you know, taking up space on a hard drive, it does kind of make me sad to think that if those things were to go out in the world and not be interested in in the moment, that they would then be you know worthless enough to burn and i'm not saying that's the situation every time that happens but you know i've sent a lot of short stories to the new yorker and a lot of short stories to the atlantic and they've got back to me exactly zero fucking times and i don't know if that affects the value of the work itself right if the goal of that artwork was to be published in you know this big magazine and you know finally begin my journey to international novelistic acclaim then it definitely failed in that regard and it has no value in that arena but it still feels valuable because it's work that I have now. I think that's different. Like it's not blurred out of existence. It's just blurred off the blockchain. 
I think you could make the argument that work minted on the blockchain is designed to sell as its prime, you know, capacity. I, I would disagree with that because the primary it's, it's, it, it's distribution before the market, right? We're playing with distribution systems that have never existed before. Right. And we're playing in a pond that is like a couple droplets of water. You know, we have the ability to grow this into like a lake and an ocean. Right. And you look at some of the biggest names like in the space today, a lot of them started by giving away their stuff for free. Right. And I tried to like explain this to people, but a lot of people came in with a like purely market context of like, this is the place to sell your work because that's how media like pick this apart. But like you look at what the trash artists at large did in the beginning and they were selling for like a dollar, right? Like X copy was selling his first stuff for like $5. Just get it out there, get it into people's hands, have them like co-invested alongside of you. Right. And it's, it's just a good thing. You know, like the obsession of maintaining floors has ruined so many artists. It has like gotten them to a place where they do not feel comfortable. They're constantly marketing, right? Those messages are falling on deaf ears. And like, also like once you kind of like blast off or have a hype moment, like how do you maintain that when the pond is this big, right? Who is like theoretically going to pay more than $10,000 in this market for works? It is a tiny amount of people, right? Well, maybe people on other chains who don't have the opportunity to own your work before. Like that's, you know, again, like you said, I mean, this is, I was kind of half a joke, but also right. It is this little pond, but you also have these other slightly interconnected little ponds without great channels between them, but they're nevertheless aware of one another. Right. Like, I do think there is something there about like, uh, I don't think we've really seen it explored too much outside of what is basically like experimentation, but like having footprints in If you are an artist and you are not taking up and trying to get as much space, you are doing a disservice, I think, to your art, right? Mm. I really think this is the stage of distribution and the people that are able to distribute the broadest and the widest across as many means as necessary are going to be the ones that have people that are invested in them like for the rest, for the long tail of their career. Now, Kirk, you've, um, you've minted on the oldest blockchain of all, the real world. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the, the how is that? Uh, well, I'm thinking of the, um, the steam at the steam at park project, right. Where you like had objects of yours, you know, in real life, right. You had an, a tangible effect and I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there is a sense of relationship to a, a topic that I've been interested in as well, which is like the interplay between physical and crypto art. Right. And like the, the bridge between those two things. Right. I, one of the things I love about like Pindar Van Arman and I talk about this all the time is like the works that are going back and forth across the stream screen, right? Like the painting, but then the printing, the digitization, like, and then that being put on the blockchain. Like it's, it's, it's very interesting how he plays with these different things. Yeah. I, I mean, Pindar has very gracefully, very elegantly been able to straddle the real world art form and the digital art form and really spoke to both mediums in such a like incredible I mean, his his work, I think, is just extraordinarily unique for that. And I think one of the biggest faults of this movement or the NFT broader NFT scene is that we are not really substantially trying to impact physical things in a creative way beyond simply plastering 
a digital thing on a digital frame and we're done. Like that, that is the biggest lack of creativity for such an immensely creative space. And I, I just don't get it. I think it's like a, a huge missed opportunity, what we're doing with all these gatherings that we do in person. And that's not to all of them, but that's to the, the broader kind of activity that takes place. Well, I, uh, I think this is indicative of a lot of physical art too. You know, I think the difference between having a building that is itself art or having a building with no artistic intent that has a piece of art in the lobby, like, that's a huge difference in intent. It's a huge difference in effect in having the art be sequestered in a specific place as opposed to being the place yeah, that says a lot. It's mat- Honestly, I think it's about maturity too. Like we are in a very young ecosystem here with a lot of artists who are well they're young for the most part but they're also like not thinking long term about their craft and i think uh this next movement i hope with this next cycle i hope we see more experimentation with like you know take your art out into your neighborhood see what it does and Mm. i i hope we i hope we start to do that i know the church has made a significant stride like that's the direction that's that's a good direction and dada also did that too with a lot of their kind of programming that they did early on um but yeah i i think it's interesting and maybe that does speak to like in terms of maturity i do see large scale lots of chains will kind of serve different purposes for different kind of mediums um i hope but yeah, I think uh, we're at an interesting point now where I think during these, this kind of downturn in the market, it's very clear how new all of this stuff is and how mm. like primordial all this <laughs> is. It's just like super messy and weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I am getting like super, I'm getting super worked up over here because it is fucking mind boggling to me that like we were, ha- we, it was like the, end of 2020 and we were having this incredible renaissance around like 3d assets and like moving into digital spaces and then we just took a hard right and it was like just jpegs just pfp projects like reducing the vision of where we were going of like what we were creating in the experimentation and like knowing that ar is coming and knowing that vr is coming and having ideas of the metaverse and like reducing it and condensing it back into that like little circle PFP project and that being the meta for the next two years that like we like missed it, right? Like I think Untitled gets it with the architecture that they're creating is that like the, the 3D environment is going to be the place where this art, this digital art that has to be native to digital space is going to begin to be expressed, right? Because mm-hmm. let me tell you, it is interesting to go into VR and to see a video and to look at a JPEG, but it is fucking fascinating to go examine like a sculpture or to go look at the details in the buildings that he does. Uh, and I like remember so distinctly when I saw, I think Frenetic Void has only done one 3D asset. The name is Cosair. It was like the most mind-bogglingly beautiful statue that I have ever seen, right? And it was presented when Super Rare did like a their first release of 3D assets. 
How this medium did not take off, I do not know. And this is not relevant to the topic at all. But like when I saw that, I'm like, this is it. This is like, this is the thing that is actually going to get people excited. But we're so accustomed to this, like this flat screen, these flat experiences. It's the phone effect. It really is. It's like that Instagram thing, man. We like really need to break out of 2D space into 3D space will be so much better for it. And like you go into these worlds when I was first going into Somnium, like this is, this is where it gets wild. Like you run into somebody, you have no idea where they're from. You, they're like in a, like I ran into a snowman once in, I'm like, this is like, what are you like? You want to be a snowman? Like that's so wild. It, that is like where imagination happens, right? It's not in these infinite scroll timelines. It's in these spaces like they become like Burning Man-esque in that you do not know like the destination or the journey, but you are attracted to things in the distance or you run into a certain group of people and that creates like a whole other connection. This is like so good for our brains to have this sense of like wonder and imagination and not fall back into these routines. Yeah, I mean, you, you even see it with even just like Twitter itself or, or super rare itself or OpenSea itself, right? Like the web two aesthetic is areas of interesting content punctuated by, or like surrounded by a sea of single gradient color, you know, very segmented areas that maybe make sense in the general UI, but for an artistic ecosystem are far less interesting. And, you know, I see even like various websites, right? When they try and do interesting things, there's only so much you can do in a 2D space that is A, artistic and B, traversable in any kind of way that is uh, un, like doable or um, portable. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'm, I feel like every conversation we have descends into like, God, we need the metaverse or like, God, we need AR. But I, I also think like, even in the real life with, sculptures and things right even when it's not on a flat surface it's still like these enclosed areas we're rarely like living within and without art right the sculpture is over there maybe it's roped off or maybe it's you know at the center of some kind of a circle in an outdoor area but it's very clear that that's the art and here's me and i'm standing in a place where there's no art looking at the place where there is art and i think that's more of a conceptual issue that it's harder and harder to overcome um I think like performance art bridges that gap really well um, in some aspects, even like comedian performance art, like Eric Andre and things like that, where, you know, you're not really sure who's on the stage or who, and, and who's not on the stage. But I, I think that's a, a more holistic problem than it is just a, a, a crypto art problem, even though maybe it's overly visible here. Yeah. We need, we need a please touch the art movement, like to, mm -hmm. to blur those boundaries a little bit differently between the, the participant and the artist to what you're saying, but also to get people out of the addiction to squares and rectangles. Yeah. We are designing to an algorithm that is a web two algorithm. It's just the feed. And that is like, there's so much creative power right here in this, in this scene. And people are still 
just like, oh, but does it fit in this? And it's like, bro, the, look at this fucking screen that we're looking at now. There's literally like 40 squares on this screen within this like live stream studio. You go to Twitter and everything's a square. There's three squares within a larger square that's segmented into a square and a rectangle. And that's what there's like, it's just layers and layers of squares within squares within squares. I blame the Romans for all this. <laughs> well, as my grandfather said to me earlier today, where there's an oi, there's a ve. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I uh, I, t- I tweeted 20 minutes into it that this is, I think, one of my f- either one of or my favorite podcasts we've done, and uh, it only got better from there. So, gentlemen, I'm going to spare you my Celtics rant for tonight because, God, I don't want to fucking talk about my, it. My Lakers are about to clinch. Yep, congratulations, Colborn. Your fucking Lakers are looking great. I was ready <laughs> to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it? Eric, you got basketball hot takes? I, well, I'm just happy my Sixers swept the Nets. That's all. Oh, fuck you guys and your Sixers and your fucking Lakers. <laughs> Boy, I can't wait to have you back in this podcast after the Celtics beat the Sixers. And that's just going to be the topic. It's just going to be, let's fucking yell at Kirk. Oh, <laughs> and Colbert, we'll see if AD can stay healthy. For three more games. Seriously, I know exactly. <laughs> Anyways, everybody, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a long uh, podcast, but. Boy, was it fun to uh, fun to be a part of it. I hope it was as much fun to listen to it. So we will be back here next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Coldborn, Untitled. Thank you both very much for being here. See everybody next week. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.